This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Dr. Peter Cram, professor at the University of Toronto School of Public Health, healthcare delivery in Canada. Dr. Cram, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Dr. Cram's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, Canada's universal healthcare program continues to receive a good deal of attention here in the U.S. For example, presidential contender and Medicare for All advocate Senator Bernie Sanders has noted repeatedly while visiting Ottawa in 1987, he saw the future of U.S. health care. Three weeks ago, the Trump administration proposed a regulatory pathway to import prescription drugs from Canada. For example, a 10-milliliter bottle of insulin in the U.S. costs $450. In Canada, it's $21. Listeners of this podcast are likely all too familiar that U.S. healthcare leaves much to be desired. Unfortunately, the only aspect trending downward is life expectancy. That is, for the first time in 100 years, decreased for three consecutive years. The number of non-elderly insured has been increasing since 2017. Cardiovascular disease mortality, for example, that still accounts for one in three deaths, and that has experienced decades of decline, has now ceased, and has actually morbidity and mortality has increased for females. Over one-third of the U.S. population is diabetic or pre-diabetic. Drug overdoses and suicides remain epidemic. And healthcare spending presently at $3.6 trillion is projected in the U.S. to reach $6 trillion by 27, or one year after bankrupting the Medicare Trust Fund. These realities and others leave U.S. physicians and other clinicians with increasing rates of burnout, major depressive disorder, and unacceptable rates of suicide. With me again to discuss how healthcare is delivered by our northern neighbor, Canada, is again University of Toronto Public Health Professor Dr. Peter Cram. So, uh, Dr. Cram, with that as background, let's discuss healthcare delivery and financing in Canada. But before we get into those details, could you provide just a general overview of Canada's uh, population health or health status? Oh, sure. Of course. And uh, just so it's funny, I knew of Bernie Sanders when I was actually uh, living in Burlington, Vermont, and he had first one office. And so as an as an American who lived in the United States for the first 45 years of my life before moving to Toronto about six years ago, um, you know, I, I think I have a pretty reasonable understanding of sort of health care in both countries. So if you look at Canada, um, it's a population of about 36 million. So that's about one-tenth of the size in population of the United States with a very similar life expectancy. And if you're to look at other measures of well-being, so not only do Canadians live about as long as Americans, on most uh, international measures of happiness or well-being, uh, Canadians seem about as happy as Americans. So we have all of that. But uh, in contrast to, to the U.S., where about 18, 17.7% of gross domestic mm-hmm. product is spent on health care, in Canada, we're somewhere down around 10. 
and that means something like a difference in per capita health care spending uh, in the U.S. I, it's well north of $10,000, and in Canada we're somewhere down around five. So huge, so huge difference. Huge difference, yeah. And let me just, as an aside, this important question, despite being insured in the U.S., uh, patients uh, experience significant out-of-pocket spending. In Canada, that situation is quite different. So, so that's both true and, uh, and then in some ways uh, surprisingly not entirely uh, uh, not entirely true. And what I mean by that, so when I uh, was uh, recruited and moved up to the University of Toronto, I figured everything was covered in Canada, and that's sort of true. So uh, here in Ontario, where I live and practice as a physician and conduct my research, uh, so uh, doctor visits, 100% covered, no copay. Emergency department visits, 100% covered, no copay. Hospitalizations, 100% covered, no copay. But then, if you start looking at some of the finer print, so for example, Canada does not have universal pharmacare. Uh, if you are under 65, you do not have uh, drug coverage unless you have it through your employer or privately purchased drug coverage. Dental care, not covered and um, eye care also not covered. Mm -hmm. So there are out-of-pocket costs for Canadians, but definitely less than, uh, than for down in the States. Okay, thank you. Let's, let's, uh, can you provide an overview of how care is organized? So it is organized at the province or territory level, correct? Yeah, so that's another thing where uh, living in the States for 45 years, I, it, I sort of knew that, but never really hit home. So um, at the federal level, the Canada Health Act uh, mandates that all Canadian provinces, which are our equivalent of states, uh, provide a health care uh, insurance or benefit. But uh, each province, so that would be, for example, Quebec versus Ontario versus Manitoba versus British Columbia, have substantial latitude in actually what services beyond the very basic bucket they cover. So what might that mean? It might mean that in, um, in Ontario, we fund joint replacements very well, but we fund bone marrow transplant therapy not so well. Therefore, an Ontario resident can get a hip or knee replacement, but be, maybe not a bone marrow transplant. But then if you went out to the West Coast in British Columbia, things might be flipped. And that's one of the places where the provinces can differ substantially. Okay, so it varies, as you say, by province or territory. Exactly, exactly. So relative to, you did discuss um, GDP spending, and so... Each province then has an annual budget for its healthcare spending. Is that correct? So each province has a budget, exactly. And it's 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 a fixed. It's capitated on an annual basis. Well, so the budget is mostly fixed, and that's where Canada faces the same challenges as every other developed country. And so I always sort of think of it as if if. Spending is measuring who's leading the race. The U.S. is far out ahead. Mm -hmm. But everybody is running 
very quickly towards higher spending. And why is that? Well, it's demographics. Um, you know, Canada's population is aging. We have the same new therapies putting pressure on uh, provincial governments. So things like CAR T cell therapy uh, at several hundred thousand dollars per treatment. Uh, we have, uh, you know, catheter-based aortic valve replacement for an increasingly older population. And so we have the same pressures as everyone else. We're just starting at a lower spending baseline, if you will. Mm -hmm. Okay. One thing that uh, Canada, through how care is organized and deliver, and does much better than the U.S. is savings on administrative costs. And in fact, there was a recent publication uh, on the difference in spend as it relates to uh, administrative costs. What are, uh, how officially does, from an administrative perspective, is, is Canadian spending? Yeah. So, so that's a really interesting one because, it, you know, um, again, having practiced and conducted research. Uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada, it's interesting how that manifests itself. So let me give you an example. Um, in Ontario, if you see a patient as a general internist, which is, uh, which is what I am, uh, you check off a box on a um, billing card or an electronic billing card, submit it, and get paid. So it literally is... Uh, check the box, submit to the government, get paid. So the good news about that is that that is really efficient and easy. There's no huge billing office in our hospital that is having to figure out if the patient is insured by Medicare versus Medicaid versus United versus Blue Cross. Mm -hmm. That simply doesn't exist. And there's no back and forth dialogue to speak of with claims getting rejected or requirements for additional documentation. So this is all sounding really good. Unless you're thinking, well, then what's the auditing process for making sure that, for example, there is no overbilling, overcharging, or fraud? And the answer is, well, there's a lot less of that because that is an administrative cost. In other words, somebody has to be sitting in the Blue Cross office or the Medicare office looking at and auditing that data, and we have a lot less of that here in Canada. We also don't have much in the way of electronic health records, um, which, you know, electronic health records here have been adopted much less. Why? Because electronic health records, to a large extent, are supporting a billing and administrative function, and if we don't have that, then geez, we can still write on paper. Right. That might be good, that might not. Okay. The um, recent publication was Annals of Internal Medicine. Right. And the study mm -hmm. found that uh, U.S. insurers and providers spent uh, 34 of the national health expenditure on admin costs, $812 billion versus Canada, 17% versus the 34 percent, and instead of the $2,500 per cap, it was $551, the study cited right. per cap in Canada. Big difference. Let's Exactly, exactly. Now, you're, as mentioned, pick up on your mentioning, you're um, an internist, general internist. Um, my understanding is the Canadian system places a greater or heavier emphasis on primary care 
and that the primary care physician, despite the way uh, budgeting and spending is conducting, does maintain a fair amount of autonomy. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's a, a, another substantial difference, so you're spot on. So, um, you know, in the U.S., obviously, primary care is delivered by uh, pediatricians, by family doctors, by certain um, gynecologists for younger women, and then uh, general internal general internists like myself. In Canada, the, uh, it's a uh, generally a European system, and what that means is that uh, the backbone of the healthcare system are family doctors, or uh, here really general practitioners. Family doctors here uh, are probably about. 50% of the residency slots, so about 50% of all medical school graduates will go into family medicine, and family medicine is really the backbone of the healthcare system. And so much so, for example, that um, you really cannot, can't and don't see a specialist without a referral from your primary care family doctor. So they really are truly the, the backbone or the gatekeeper, if you will, for, for health care and health care spending. And let's, let's stay with that. So obviously primary care, the goal is to get at um, a disease prevention, health promotion, and avoid uh, secondary or tertiary prevention, which, of course, we know through mm-hmm. any number of studies saves a good deal of spending if you can offset or postpone the onset of disease. Um, but to stay with this, and having mentioned HIT, uh, what also is striking that uh, Canada, say on a per patient or per thousand patients, is in a sense uh, more low tech in that it uses far less imaging equipment. Is that correct? So we, so I can't speak specifically to whether we have lower utilization of imaging overall, but what I would tell you is that our family doctors here are much more likely to be in solo practice, so um, not part of large multi, multi-specialty groups. They often are standalone, very limited electronic health record or electronic health record connectivity. Um, they're not using that record so much for billing, so it doesn't have to be so fancy or expensive. Um, and But the, the, there definitely are challenges with the primary care system in Canada. And what I mean by that is if you uh, read some of the data from the Commonwealth Fund, mm-hmm. uh, family doctors, so good news, family doctors in Canada are paid better than their primary care peers in the United States. So it's a a more desirable job. But on the downside, um, access to primary care continues to be a challenge, particularly off hours, nights, weekends, and in rural areas, which is, uh, you know, the Commonwealth Fund points out quite clearly. What that means, of course, is then patients are going to the emergency department, uh, and our emergency departments are chronically overcrowded because of, you know, uh, difficulties in in patients getting access um, Mm -hmm. on, you know, in many sort of times of year and in many locations. 
Okay, thank you. Just to just to cite a um, JAM Internal Medicine 2018 piece, uh, mm-hmm. and this may be Commonwealth uh, data, but per published table, for example, MRI units per one million population in the U.S. it's 38 units. In Canada, it's nine. I, I may make note two per 1,000 population. Uh, physicians per 1,000 are exactly the same. Uh, U.S. compared to Canada, it appears per this table, again, uh, 2018, uh, September, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, nurses um, per 1,000, 11, uh, 9.5 in Canada. Um, so you mentioned emergency. So, so and, Sir, and just to, to go off, so you're, you're right. So, um, you know, there was a paper by uh, Irini Papanicolas and Ashish Jaw that was in JAMA maybe a couple of years ago that did get at this. And you're definitely right that when it gets to, I, I would sort of stratify Canadian and U.S. care along sort of low-tech and high-tech, but you're definitely right. So advanced, things like advanced imaging, mm-hmm. So, so, so X-rays or CT scans are pretty ubiquitous in Canada, ECGs. But the more expensive the treatment gets, the less uh, sort of the bigger the gap is. So, fewer, much less MRI, much less PET scanning. Um, if you talk about proton beam therapy, which is a big cost item in the U.S., uh, much less of that. So, it really is around the sort of tertiary and quaternary care, where I think the differences get magnified. So you betcha. You're right on there. And since we know from economics, uh, supply creates its own demand. If you have more imaging machines, you tend to use more imaging machines, which explains why U.S. does far more imaging tests. Let me go to one of your um, publications. This is a recent uh, piece uh, health services research. This is utilization and outcomes for spine surgery. So this, right. um, I've, I wasn't surprised, but it is sort of striking. Um, so for example, you note that uh, as it relates to Ontario and New York, um, spine surgery, Ontario, um, decompression plus fusion, 6.6 procedures per 10,000. New York was 165 um, substantially more. Um, so it, it does appear, and I know this certainly in um, uh, lower extremity joint replacements, LEGRs, um, uh, knee and hip arthroplasties, we do massively more hip and knees than probably any other country. So one other striking difference is, um, particularly in preference-sensitive uh, instances, um, U.S. does far more in these surgical procedures than Canada. You'd agree? So, so it's interesting. So, the, in, in our research, so I do a lot of U.S. Canadian comparisons, and you're right. Spine surgery, three x or three hundred uh, percent more in New York than Ontario. Um, we actually published a paper a few years back looking at joint replacement, and we thought we would find again massively higher rates in the U.S. Um, what's funny there is that Ontario had invested a huge amount of money, massive amount of money, to reduce their joint replacement wait times because of public uh, outrage. Mm-hmm. And so our joint replacement rates in Ontario pretty much match those of New York. But then 
just to keep going down this, we have a paper coming out next week, actually, looking at advanced cardiovascular therapeutics. This is um, left ventricular assist devices, mm-hmm. uh, TAVRs. Chest of heart failure. It'll be published literally next week. And that one, again, shows, you know, similar to what you were saying, David, a, about a, you know, 100 to 300% higher utilization in New York for these cardiovascular therapies. So I think you're right on. Globally speaking, the U.S. does much more of the expensive stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have much and, more yeah. higher number of specialists versus primary care docs. It, it's, 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 so yes and yeah, yes and yes. So you have more specialists. You also have um, you know, so, so it's important for people to understand that Canadian hospitals typically are um, globally budgeted. So for my hospital, if they do uh, 10 more back surgeries or 100 more back surgeries or 1,000 more back surgeries, they're not getting more money. If you go right across the border to, say, Rochester, New York or Buffalo, the more back surgery they do, the more mm-hmm. money they make. And that is a powerful incentive for the hospitals in Canada to, to try and restrict volume. Okay. I, I do want to ask about this Canadians looking uh, south or um, medical tourism. But since you mentioned, let's go back to ED crowding. Uh, one of yeah. the criticisms, in fact, Sally Pipes, I thought, almost threw a clot in a publish a piece she published recently, complaining about, oh God forbid we have uh, MFA Medicare for all, and it looks like Canada because of wait times in Canada. Uh, set me straight on how bad or significant wait times are uh, in Canada. Yeah, so you know we have a love hate relationship in sort of health services research or health health economics with uh, copays. So in an absence of co-pays or uh, some people would say no skin in the game, right. the, the cost of going to an emergency department in Ontario or in most of Canada is really your own time. But other than that, you're not going to have a, um, an out-of-pocket mm-hmm. expenditure. In contrast, in the U.S., uh, you you have you know a strong financial reason not to go to the emergency department, and that's correct. Our emergency departments are very crowded. Um, wait times are extremely long. I've had conversations with uh, colleagues from uh, U.S. academic medical centers who say, "Well, our wait times are long too." Um, I understand that. I think that it's a, sort of a different beast here. Uh, because of the difference in sort of uh, uh, healthcare financing, and it does change public behavior. Um, maybe that's okay, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Let's. Um, since I mentioned, I do want to get to the uh, drug importation issue, but um, yeah, the uh, relative to wait times, and having mentioned uh, tourism, uh, are you aware of data relative to the extent to which uh, Canadians travel south of the border? Uh, to seek care in the U.S. And I will say, and this gets large, very little discussion, but medical tourism in the U.S. is 
substantial. Uh, the Caribbean, Canada, of course, uh, the Philippines, um, and elsewhere, it is it is tens of billions, much uh, much ignored, interestingly. But to what extent are you aware? And this this effect occurs in any uh, substant, substantive extent uh, in your country. Yeah. So it's funny about. Uh Eight years ago, when I was in Iowa, I published a study uh, trying to estimate the number of uh, Americans going abroad for medical tourism, so Americans going out. Mm -hmm. If I were to look at Canadian, and, and it was really hard to get data, but we did manage to get some and published it. If you asked me about empirical data on the number of Canadians going out, I don't actually, I think I've looked for this in the past and have never found a really good source. Definitely happens. Uh, when Canadians do this, they are almost universally paying out of pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and they go for two reasons. One is to avoid wait times. So I'm a you know, moderate to high income Canadian and I don't want to wait for my knee replacement. So I'll go over to right. Buffalo or... The second reason that Canadians will do it is because of the perception that there's care that they can get in the U.S. that they can't get in Canada. And this would be the case of somebody with terminal cancer going to Hopkins or MD Anderson or the Mayo Clinic. Um, and I think that in that, I think there's less data. So I think there's reasonable evidence that you can get some treatments more quickly in the U.S. if you go across the border as to whether you can get uh, truly get treatments that will save your life in the U.S. that you can't get in Canada. I'm more dubious of that. And, uh, you know, we, we counsel patients about that all the time. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, they will be able to get care uh, if they're willing to pay out of pocket. Whether it makes a difference, I'm more skeptical. Okay, okay. Again, uh, I mentioned the um, uh, Trump administration, interestingly enough, although... Um, this has been legal, but HHS secretaries have refused to do this, and that is import. So a proposed rule came out creating a regulatory pathway mm -hmm. for various um, entities defined in the proposed um, to import. My understanding from just the more popular press is Canada is not happy at all about this because the um, American demand is almost uh, endless uh, for prescription medication. What, what's your take on, uh, on, on the extent this will happen? And, and let me just ask you from the parochial Canadian perspective, to what extent do you think this will be detrimental to Canadians? So, so I, I think that um, in terms of it harming Canadians, I'm doubtful. I've read, there's certainly been stuff written about that that, you know the U.S. is ten times the market of Canada, and if mm -hmm. all, if every American all at once starts buying their drugs from their medications from Canada, they will drive up prices here or limit supply. I think that the uh, the actuality is that even if that were to happen, it would be a gradual ramp up, and I imagine that our that that supply would get preferentially routed to Canada to meet the demand. So that I'm not terribly sort of uh, frightful of. Mm -hmm. What I think is more interesting is the sort of lack of nuance in how, so which drugs right. and there's talk about is it um, pills or is it injectables is it biologics and high cost drugs or is it 
generics and things like insulin that are commonly used but mm-hmm. relatively um you know, been in existence for a long time. So which medications? And then there's actually the nuts and bolts of uh, of how the medication gets moved across the border. So currently uh, needs to, the medication would have to have a, a prescription from a Canadian physician. So there are actually a lot, uh, it's a lot more complex than sort of the, the, the 30 second sound bite on CNN or Fox News. Right, yes it is, as most issues are. For my, yes, exactly. For, for my last question, uh, sort of a wrap-up question, you published in 2016 with two colleagues uh, in the Journal of uh, General Internal Medicine uh, an article titled Trade-Offs, Pros and Cons of Being a Doctor and Patient in Canada. And I thought, relative to summing up, uh, compare and contrast our two systems, I thought this did an excellent, was, was an excellent work. Um, what, what's your what's your um, overall take on pros and cons? So, I think there's some some important advantages to the Canadian system. Ninety nine percent of the population is insured. It is administratively extremely simple, both for patients and for physicians. If you're a legal resident of Canada, you get insured and you get virtually the same care as any other Canadian. On the downside, uh, there are uh, chronic sort of chronic issues with access. I just recently published a uh, an editorial about my son's experience waiting for an elective shoulder surgery and I can say that most any parent in Boston or LA or St. Louis would not have been happy with the weight that he had. Mm-hmm. We were relative. We we were relatively satisfied, but I think that it's really about trade-offs. And uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, Americans have to ask themselves some hard questions about whether they are actually willing to make some sacrifices to get everybody consistent universal healthcare access. And if people are unwilling to make any sacrifices, uh, I think you're stuck with the status quo. Right, so we're stuck with this argument, is it a right or a privilege? You conclude right. your 16th piece by saying, in part, it's more equitable, as you noted, uh, more robust safety, um, and mm-hmm. no one's uh, headed to bankruptcy court uh, as a result of uh, utilizing uh, care. These are not, of course, trivial advantages. So I'll, I'll, give, yeah. you, I'll, leave, I'll give you the... Uh, uh, last word, maybe something I didn't uh, ask or cover uh, in this discussion. What might you add? No, I, I, you know, I think that it's going to be an interesting uh, election season in the U.S., and I continue to encourage people to ask uh, ask candidates the hard questions about what Medicare for All really looks like, mm-hmm. um, how they're going to pay for it, because uh, I truly don't think there's such thing as a free lunch. Um, and uh, I'll wa- I'll, I will watch eagerly. <laughs> as, all, as we will, all will. So thank you, yeah. uh, Peter. Generally appreciate this overview. Very yeah, helpful. well, thanks for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. Take care. Take care. Have a good one. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website 
thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.